Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This isn't Bitcoin, right? This is this is just criminal behavior. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And if you've been listening for a while now, you might know that for probably a year now, I've wanted to do a special series of episodes to explain and explore the profound political implications of the emerging financial tools and technologies and assets that are vaguely implied by the term crypto. Some of you have expressed a lot of interest in this topic. Still others of you might be thinking, don't bother me too much with crypto. I hope it goes away before I ever have to learn more about it. (laughs) I've received messages to that effect. If you identify with that sentiment, I understand. But I would suggest that you may have been ill-served by the mostly simplistic and uh, often dismissive coverage of this topic among major news media. So while I am planning a longer series of episodes that will begin with some fundamentals about money and currency, like its origin and evolution, properties and functions, and some of the fundamental themes driving this innovation, like privacy uh, and the freedom to transact legally without government interference, the dollar as the global reserve currency, which has come up a few times on the podcast, this is not that series. But I am particularly excited about the conversation we're about to have because I think it will offer you a window into the disruptive power of emerging finance and the novel questions and turf wars that lawmakers and regulators and prosecutors are now facing as a result of this innovation in the context of an enormously consequential war of lobbyists and lawyers and PR firms and activists between Wall Street and Silicon Valley. So today we're going to talk about Sam Bankman-Fried and the collapse of what was one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world, FTX and everything you need to understand about this story. To do that, I am lucky to have two good friends joining me today whose combined knowledge and expertise spans everything we're going to talk about today. Donna Riddell was the managing director of the World Economic Forum, and she was the first woman to chair a U.S. exchange, the Commodities Exchange. She's also a New York City-based advisor and investor focusing on fintech, blockchain, and emerging technologies. Donna also developed and teaches a course on blockchain, crypto, digital assets at Fordham Law School and the Fordham Gabelli Business School. She's also taught at the Wharton School at Penn and her alma mater, Columbia. She has a JD from Fordham Law School and an MBA from Columbia. Donna, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Politicology. She's very, very happy to be here, and I'm looking forward to an exciting conversation, um, especially in the times we are at the moment. We are also joined by Justin Weitz, a partner at the international law firm Morgan Lewis, where he specializes in white-collar criminal issues and government enforcement. Justin spent a decade at the Department of Justice, 
with a focus on running and managing public corruption and complex financial fraud investigations and prosecutions. Over the last several years, Justin has spent quite a bit of time focused on cryptocurrency-related criminal investigations. Justin, it's great to have you here. Welcome to Politicology. It is wonderful to be here. So they had $5 billion in withdrawals that same day. Uh, (laughs) $5 billion with a B. Um, And this run on the bank really revealed that FTX had moved at least $4 billion uh, from FTX to Alameda, as you mentioned, their trading arm. That's according to Reuters. Uh, The Wall Street Journal reported FTX lent more than half of its $16 billion in customer funds to Alameda in total. November 11th, I should say, FTX had filed bankruptcy uh, for FTX, FTX FTX.us, and Alameda. And then by December 12th, SBF was arrested in the Bahamas at the request of the U.S. government on charges that included wire fraud and conspiracy to defraud investors. And Justin, that brings us to the criminal case. So that's where we stand now. As you mentioned before, this looks like a Ponzi scheme uh, wrapped in a run on the bank, right? So you have this dynamic of Binance's CEO saying, uh, this this report looks fishy. We're going to trade all of our FT, our, our box tokens. <laughs> so, so I love that we're calling them box tokens. Uh, so other people try to get their money out. That reveals that there's this $8 billion hole where they took customer money and moved it somewhere else. Um, they had been just liquid enough that they could use the money that was coming in to cover the money they needed to give back out. But then it all broke down. So where does that leave us with the criminal case? Yeah, so every Ponzi scheme... Uh works until it doesn't work, right? And then all of a sudden you see that the emperor has no clothes and it seems like that's what happened here, right? right. Things went quickly in November and everybody saw that Sam Bankman-Fried had no clothes, which is an image I'll leave for another day. <laughs> I, there, so let me, let me lay out the criminal issues here because it's not just SBF and that's a really important thing to remember, even though SBF has been the focus of much of the media coverage and of course, um, as Donna said, was the wunderkind and the person who was getting all the attention. Uh, the, Guilty pleas by Carolyn, Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang are in some ways as, if not more important mm. in understanding this. And I'll get to that in okay. a second. Okay. So first of all, you have, and the SEC and CFTC also brought their own charges, which is important, but it's a discussion, I think, for a bit later in the, in the program. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, which is really one of the leading and most uh, active prosecutor's offices in this space. They take the all the big space. cases. Yeah, they take a lot of big cases. Um, and, and this is one that they did, and they did very quickly and impressively, I'll say. Uh, I was impressed by how quickly they managed to bring these charges. Hmm. Um, and they look, based on what I've seen, like charges that are likely to stick. Now, some of that they may owe to Sam Bankman-Fried and other people. I have a suspicion that there were some things that they did uh, that helped the prosecutors, whether it's public statements or putting things in documents that you shouldn't put in documents if you're running a criminal <laughs> conspiracy. Um, you know, I, again, not legal advice, yeah. but, uh, you know, don't, don't necessarily write down your criminal activity. Um, so there have been three individuals charged. Sam Bankman-Fried obviously is the first one. And then a week or two after Bankman-Fried was charged, Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang were both charged and they pleaded guilty. Uh, and they're cooperating with the government. That's incredibly important because in trying to put together a case against Sam Bankman-Fried with what is complex subject matter, and it just is, cryptocurrency, uh, you know, it's complex. I think your average jury, and remember, your average jury is not people who are listening to the Politicology podcast, and there are 12 people from the Southern District of New York, so Manhattan, Bronx, a couple of other upstate counties, uh, and 
they are not as well versed in cryptocurrency and blockchain and the way all of this works. And so you need somebody who's going to be a narrator. Mm -hmm. And Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang, you have two people who are likely to be pretty competent narrators. They're smart. Uh, they were clearly right there when it all happened. And they'll be able to explain to a jury in a way that no document and no balance sheet, no matter how ridiculous it looks, is going to be able to do. Mm. And so that, if I were Sam Bankman's Freed's lawyer, which I'm not, uh, that would be what concerns me the most, is there are two people who are on the inside who know exactly what happened. Now, those two people who've pleaded guilty, who pleaded guilty very quickly, and before being indicted, they both have excellent lawyers. And those excellent lawyers would not have walked them in and had them cooperate and plead guilty to yeah. multiple felonies. And both of them pleaded guilty to multiple charges that carry a lot of time if, they, uh, if things fall apart, unless the evidence against those two people was devastating, which means that there was other witness testimony. Mm -hmm. There was documentary evidence, whether in the form of emails or chats or text messages or signals uh, or signal or, or WhatsApp messages. Yeah. There was something in there that was put in front of these two people, and they said, you have no choice, really. Your best case scenario depends on you pleading guilty. And cooperating. Yeah. And, and because to get that kind of guilty plea so quickly yeah. Yeah. Uh, is indicative mm. that the evidence was really strong against them. And if it was really strong against them, I have to imagine it's really strong against SBF as well. As a kind of backdrop, um, you know, uh, there was this. I don't know if you want to call it an apology tour or whatever um, on the many of the uh, shows that SBF went on in which he basically was, you know, proverbially throwing uh, Caroline and others under the bus. I mean, he was yeah. saying, I, I had no knowledge of this. Um, yes, I made some mistakes, which goes back to Justin's point, a uh, point he made about intent. Um I, I, you know, I, I made mistakes. I, I, I took my eye off the ball. I was too busy. I did this. I did that. You know, there are many, many interviews people could listen to. And so um, not to say that they hadn't already gone, sought uh, legal counsel and decided what they were going to do. But this did not most probably enamor them to the position of their former colleague and boss that um, he was not going to try and deflect blame from himself onto them. Right. And his, his inability or unwillingness to stop talking. Yeah. Has. So the first thing, the screenshots of the DMS that have been uh, publicized that he knew were going to be public are just incredible. I mean, it's crazy to yeah. me. And when you're, when you're a prosecutor in a white collar case, the number one thing you want is for your target or defendant to talk and talk and talk <laughs> and just say things. So the statements, and Donna and I both teach law school classes. That <laughs> one of the first rules you learn in evidence class in law school is that the statements of a defendant or of somebody who's opposed to you in litigation are admissible against you. Hmm. And by talking, it's all evidence that's admissible in court. And when whatever SPF said in November and December before he was arrested, contrast that to whatever he said over the last 18 months. And mm. I guarantee you that people from the FBI and DOJ are making charts of the things he said in November and December and how exactly side by side, how they differ to what he said. And, you know, getting back to the intent thing yeah. in, in a white collar case, the most difficult thing to prove is intent. Okay. And one of the best ways to show that somebody was acting with intent to defraud or criminal intent is by showing when they have inconsistent stories, when they hide things, when they lie. And, Usually when you represent somebody 
as a, I'm a criminal defense lawyer now, if you represent somebody who has exposure in a criminal case, you tell them not to talk because you don't know what they've said over mm. the last year, two years, three years, and you're afraid of that inconsistency. The contrast is what you're afraid of. Okay. Exactly. And, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried doesn't have to testify at trial. He has a right to remain silent under the Constitution. But those statements that he made in the past, those are going to come in. Mm. And you can, you can be guaranteed that there's going to be an opening statement or a closing argument from a prosecutor in this trial that features his statements side by side. And I'm sure there'll be some really nice graphic that, <laughs> that they make on the chart that says SBF's web of lies or something like that. So why I, this, I think everyone that I speak to has spent the last three months racking their brain on why this guy won't stop talking, but yeah. frankly, he won't stop talking even now that he's charged. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've got we've, and some of the talking he's doing now is getting you know the 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 judge um, and the prosecutors more annoyed, like trying to contact and contacting witnesses. Yeah, that is a very serious, as Justin will tell you, thing not to do um, because that carries um, additional penalties. And he is now currently being threatened again as of yesterday um, with the potential to have his bail revoked because he's using you know, VPNs and other kinds of masking devices to uh, engage in internet when he is not supposed to do certain things. All right. So after we recorded this episode, uh, prosecutors filed a superseding indictment. So we wanted to jump back in here uh, to cut in and discuss these new charges. The charges against him include um, wire fraud, commodities fraud, money laundering, conspiracy to defraud the FEC, and commit campaign finance violations. We haven't really touched on the campaign finance stuff yet, although it has been well-documented reported that he gave a lot of money to Democratic causes and candidates. Um, and so that's a completely different story. We're not going to get into that today. But SBF has been accused of defrauding the FEC and additional counts of wire fraud and money laundering. When we first spoke about this, uh, Justin, you talked about the rule of specialty, which is this rule that you can't extradite someone based on one charge and then charge them for something else after they've been extradited. How can prosecutors square this superseding indictment with that rule? Sure. So uh, it's an interesting concept, and in, it really is an international law concept that applies to prosecutors in the U.S. and elsewhere. And what it means, the rule of specialty is this idea that you can only be tried, um, if you get extradited from one country to another, you can only be tried on the charges you were extradited on. SBF's lawyers in the hearings, the extradition hearings that happened in the Bahamas, uh, they asked specifically for the rule of specialty to be invoked. And so what that usually means is that when you come to the U.S. after having been extradited, that you are not going to be charged with new charges unless it's something that arises after you are already in the U.S. So if you delete all your text messages or obstruct the investigation or start a new scam after you get extradited, fair game. But generally, the rule of specialty precludes the idea that you can go and add new charges later for conduct that you weren't extradited on. I don't know what DOJ's justification is for adding these new charges. I, I imagine that if this goes to trial, that SBF's lawyers will fight this pretty hard on those grounds because they've invoked the rule of specialty previously. They've indicated it's something that's really important to them that if he was going to be extradited, and remember, they moved very quickly with extradition. They consented to it. They didn't fight it. I, I would imagine that they are going to say that essentially DOJ broke a promise. Now, maybe DOJ has some reason 
that they think that the extradition treaty doesn't apply, uh, that these charges don't fall within the rule of specialty. Maybe there's been some kind of waiver. I don't know why SPF would waive it, but maybe he waives it. Um, but I assume that if this goes to trial and SPF goes ahead and fights it, he's going to say that these charges were brought outside the rule of specialty. Okay. So let's talk about the differences among these charges then. Sure. So, uh, you know, SPF is now charged with 12 counts. And one thing that's notable about this superseding indictment versus the original indictment is that the original indictment was a bare bones indictment as opposed to what we call a speaking indictment. And a bare bones indictment is perfectly valid and perfectly sufficient under the law, but basically it says the defendant, Sam Bankman-Fried, committed these crimes, and it doesn't give you much information. This is what we're accusing him of. That's all we have to tell you right now. Yes, you're on notice that you've been accused of wire fraud or commodities fraud or securities fraud or conspiracy. That's all you legally need. You don't have to say, and we know this because... Exactly. <laughs> okay. You don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to say any of that. But because prosecutor's offices tend to only speak through their filings, uh, they like to generally <laughs> put in some stuff there, especially yeah. the really good evidence, yeah. uh, because it allows them to then... First of all, it allows them to talk about right. the topic because it's then in the public domain. But uh, they want to get a narrative out as well. Yeah. And so uh, the new indictment, which they've had a few months to work on since uh, SBF was originally arrested in the Bahamas in December, uh, is much more detailed. Mm. It's more detailed. I mean, it's 39 pages. Um, and more than half of that is just allegations. And it goes into a lot of detail. It's, it quotes from messages. Uh, that were sent on messaging services. It quotes from uh, various things that Bankman-Fried said to other people who were members of the conspiracy. And one of the reasons they were probably able to put this together now and were not as confident in being able to put it together back in December is the pleas um, of several, the pleas and cooperation of several members Uh, of SBF's inner circle. So uh, Caroline Ellison, um, you know, she... Early on, I think, shortly after um, Bankman-Fried was arrested, cooperated, and we've had other people also cooperate and plead guilty. And so then they give that evidence over to uh, DOJ and Got explain it. what happened. And so early on, I mean, I, I was very impressed and surprised by how quickly DOJ put together the case against SBF. It's clear they were working with Ellison and Wang and other cooperators at the time, but now you see the evidence of that cooperation the evidence is clearly in the indictment for the world to see. And although they don't necessarily say who's saying what, um, you know, you could see Ellison is mentioned at times, right? And there's things that are mentioned from Ellison, but there's other people who are not mentioned by name who are identified as co-conspirator one or are given other um, aliases. And they do that because they're still developing their investigation Mm. as it goes. But there's a lot of evidence here that was not there in the earlier indictment. So does this change what they're going to need to prove, what prosecutors are going to need to prove? So the new counts do. And among the new counts, there's some bank fraud-related counts. Okay. Uh, There's a count of operating an unlicensed money-transmitting business, which is a crime in and of itself. Don't do it. A money-transmitting business. So under federal law, you can't operate what's known as a money-transmitting business without a license. Okay. This has been an issue that a lot of crypto companies have Uh, come across. Okay. What is money? What is a transmitting business? Uh, It's been a vexing issue for a lot of fintech companies. Obviously, you know, if you're a big bank, you're licensed. You're going to be a licensed transmitting business. 
But the other thing that I would say about money transmitter businesses is this is a state-by-state state, regulation a framework across the country. And so every if you are an exchange, you have to register in every state to be a money transmitter there. Now, the states may have additional kinds of regulations. For example, in New York, you have to get a bit license and you have to, you know, for the most part, get a, 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 a trust, be a trust in order to custody the assets. Um, so this is a this is a serious charge, but it is also the point of failure, I would say, in not having a federal regulatory system in the U.S. because, you know, in state, you know, and I know the tension between state versus federal, especially in, in with Republican senators, but uh, what one they're looking at is the ability to, for, for in the in the new bill, the new Loomis um, Gillibrand bill that will be introduced, is that you could choose you the exchange could choose state or federal regulation. Now a lot of people would opt for federal because you have one regulator, you do it once. If you have state, you got to do it fifty plus the territories, so fifty two times. And that's expensive, and there, you know there's a lot going on there for that. So just some backstory on on money transmitting. That's helpful. It is because the way the money transmitting, the unlicensed money transmitting business law works, the criminal law is if you're violating the law with the right intent, if you're operating a business in a state and aren't licensed in that state, that's also a federal crime. Okay. Which again, yeah. there are very right. few crypto exchanges that are going to be licensed right. in every state, in every state. and so. It's it it is a point of weakness, I think, for a lot of fintech and crypto companies because you're you're transmitting money in some sense of it, right? Money's moving back and forth, yeah. whether it's fiat currency or it's crypto. Yeah. Um, and so you're vulnerable on this, and it's something that a lot of exchanges and really anybody who's yeah in doing more than just trading crypto, if right. you're operating a business, yeah, uh, it needs to think about. Yeah. Um. So. That's one of the charges that was added on SBF. Okay. And, and my guess is one of the reasons it was added um, is it's probably an easier charge okay. in a lot of ways for the government to prove. And I assume they're trying to send a message to SBF that you're cooked 10 yeah. ways to Tuesday. Yeah, right. And, you know, whether it's the securities fraud or the commodities fraud or yeah. the lying to the FEC or whatever it is, yeah. there are a lot of different ways in which the government can choose to proceed a trial here. Okay. And a jury is going to hear all of this evidence. Got it. Okay. So if I'm getting this correctly, the this, a superseding indictment is not necessarily in and of itself unusual or rare. It's that this is a superseding indictment following an extradition. And my question is whether or not this superseding indictment is uh, maybe, you know, a violation of some pro forma rules or if it's actually a legal problem for prosecutors to overcome if they want to actually uh, pursue, you know, proving that he did this, the, these extra crimes. So you're right. A superseding indictment is not unusual. And I would say probably in the majority of complex white collar cases, you, as you, you investigate, them. new crimes come up. People flip, you People learn more crimes. Exactly. You learn more <laughs> crimes, you get more evidence, especially right. they, they happen all the time. So right. there's nothing unusual about that. Yeah. Frankly, I wouldn't have been surprised to see a superseding indictment here that even just fleshed out yeah. the background allegations and gave us more meat on the bone. Got it. I was surprised to see a superseding indictment that adds new charges because, again, unless there's something that I'm missing and the rest of us in the white collar bar are missing yeah. about the rule of specialty, it seems problematic. Now, in terms of the in terms of the way this works, 
Bankman-Fried would have to fight this and would have to litigate it and go before the judge. Um, and he's in front of, right? This case is in front of a judge in New York. And if he chooses to go to trial, they will fight and litigate and make motions on a million issues. And this yep. will be one of them. Okay. And maybe DOJ has an explanation how this doesn't violate the U.S.-Bahamas um, extradition treaty, which I had the fortune of reading um, last <laughs> week. And I, you know, I, you don't have to read it. Um, but someone is going to read it. And yeah. if it does violate the treaty, then it could be an issue yeah. for DOJ, but the issue would not be that the case gets thrown out. Right. It would just be it this would, one thing. It would be these out. specific added okay. charges. So okay. from DOJ's perspective, maybe they feel like they have a legal reason um, that this is justified. Maybe they feel that it's yeah, worth a fight. Bury him in paperwork. Let exactly. him fight it. I, yeah. yeah. I, that may just be it. Yeah. And it may be their view that he is ultimately going to plead guilty anyway. And so they want more options on the table. Interestingly, I've not seen much written about this. In the legal chats I'm in or other places, I've not seen this brought up again um, about the adding of charges. Um, so I'm just curious about why people haven't and maybe they know something more. I, I, I mean, my speculation on that is that this is a very niche rule that you would only deal with if you're dealing in a very specific area of law. Um, my guess is most prosecutors haven't dealt with this. Most defense lawyers haven't dealt with this. Um, and right. most reporting is not really, they don't really need to get into the details in this way. Exactly. The narrative uh, is that he did crimes and yes. and the case is going to, yeah. And if he files a motion, I'm sure they'll go ahead and do it and then it'll be covered. You know, it, it's the kind of thing that just doesn't happen that often because usually extradition takes a long time. And usually you don't indict a case within four weeks of learning conduct, which again is a credit to DOJ. They yeah. did such a great, Super quick fast. job on this. But um Certainly they learned stuff after early December when they filed the initial indictment that they wanted to include. So yeah. I just think it doesn't come up that often as an issue for that reason. And, yeah. you know, most people who get extradited from other countries are extradited on drugs or violence or other things where it doesn't implicate it, right? right. You're not, yes, you may add additional drug charges, but they're the same kind of charge. And so that isn't implicated yeah. by rule, especially. Got it. Okay. Uh, all right. Before we uh, jump back into the main conversation, is there anything else we should uh, that's timely that we need to drop in here? Nope. Does that pretty much cover it? I think okay. it does. Cool. All right. Then back into the episode. So I think there are two things um, that I just want to point out. First of all, the one thing I wanted to say just is that most Ponzi schemes come unraveled, the ones on this scale, from an exogenous event. And the exogenous event in... Um, in Madoff was the housing crisis. An exogenous event here was um, the central banks starting to raise on a concerted basis their interest rates. So that's a good, that's a good point. We have we didn't even touch on that, and that's a really good point. That had a lot yeah. to do. And that, that was a you know, okay, yeah. and, and another time where now, if you want, you know, it just means that everybody comes in on their risk curve. They want less risk. Why? Because if the central bank is giving you let's just say 5%, you don't need to go elsewhere to get 5% that has risk. Here, you're going to do it on a, quote, riskless basis. That's that's number one. Number two, I do want to underscore for the audience that these shenanigans on these centralized exchanges, whether it is FTX, Celsius, et cetera, they have many things in common. And Ponzi schemes normally do. They have a central figure in the middle that becomes somewhat mythical. You had you had um, you know uh, Madoff. You had you had uh, uh, Mashinsky, who was you know screaming people and and FTX. Um, 
you have um, some core group of people that become um, almost like enthusiast, uh, enthusiastic followers that kind of defend the, the central person and, and, and gate, gate that person from, from others, et cetera. Um, so, you, so you have these things, but this is not crypto. This is not decentralized finance. This is not the principles under Bitcoin and what it was founded for. So I do think that, you know, one, the audience needs to understand that. And two, I'm very concerned that the regulatory response is not necessarily because is is a reaction to the FTX because they need to show they're doing something, which is different than taking a new technology and saying, as we said in the beginning, sitting down and doing the hard work to figure out what would be the proper regulation of the decentralized technology, not of the on-ramps and the off-ramps like the FTXs, which need you know, very similar rules to exchanges. We have exchanges. We know what they are. We just need a, a you know comprehensive approach and not 50 states, each one of them requiring you to register in their in their state in order to operate there, which means you have 50 people to report to um, and things can fall through the cracks, as as obviously they do. And Donna's totally right. I, I would this isn't Bitcoin, right? This is this is just criminal behavior. <laughs> I guess yeah. I should say alleged criminal behavior as far as right. SBF goes and, and criminal behavior as far as Ellison and Wang goes, but it's criminal behavior. And the best example of the fact that it's not criminal behavior that's unique to crypto or is special because of crypto is the fact that the charges against SBF, those are charges that have been on the books forever. Wire fraud has existed forever, and it's a very flexible statute. So from the criminal perspective, I mean, this is just a criminal conspiracy, and it could be crypto, it could be magic beans, it could be- It could be dollars. It could be dollars, it could yep. be medical tests, it could be anything. Mm. And it's not a crypto, I understand why this has been viewed as a crypto-specific story yeah. with SPF, but he's just a, he's a wunderkind who went south. Yeah. That's how I think of it. Yeah. One thing that yeah, I would- and it's just okay. like, as you just were saying, Justin, it's like the, the you know, the wunderkind who went south and had- you know, I've um, the Theranos, uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth um, um, Holmes, right? In terms of she defrauded, she defra she's not convicted of defrauding investors. And, you know, she also, in my view, you know, really could have harmed people um, substantially by giving them false blood uh, work, which is which is really horrible. Yeah, I think that the perception issue is really important to get to because uh, I think I think this case and how it has um, become to define for a lot of people, unfairly, unjustly defined for a lot of people, crypto, right? Quote unquote crypto. Um, there are interests, political interests, uh, who who benefit from that perception. Like the legacy financial industry that is being disrupted by these tools and technologies and digital assets. Uh, would really like that characterization to continue. So I think that's that's a piece of this we need to um, keep in mind. But Donna, this is a perfect segue to to where I wanted to go next, which was um, you know, we've we've now explained the criminal case. We have no movement since then, right? So SPF is under house arrest. He's got an ankle bracelet. He's occasionally doing interviews. He's still talking for some reason, so Justin. The, the movement, like, is, yeah, the movement is as Donna <laughs> said that he seems to be unable to comply with his conditions of release, and if he keeps it up, he's 
First of all, he's upsetting the judge, which Ugh. is not something you ever want to do when you're going into a criminal trial where you're facing a lot of time in prison. Even I can it's, understand that. You know, <laughs> it is it is not a good idea to yeah, get the judge. Don't make the judge mad. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you want the judge to be predisposed to like you, right. or at least not hate you. Right. Um, but he's running a risk with everything he does of eventually. I mean, a lot of people, as they're awaiting trial, are not out on bail, and one of the reasons that you cannot be out on bail is not complying with your bail conditions hmm. and he's getting closer and closer. And so maybe, maybe this has driven some sense into him that he should comply with those conditions, not be in touch with witnesses, do all those other things that every lawyer begs their client to do. But at some point who knows, right? Yeah. He, he may continue doing it and have more problems, but otherwise I think, you know, after a case gets charged, there's very often a lull um, and I think right now his lawyers are probably going through the evidence, figuring out what their defense theory will be. How uh, bad is this? How bad is this? Deciding what the next steps are. And then ultimately it'll be his decision. Does he go to trial or not? Right. But I think that's still a ways off. Okay. So that's where we sit currently with this criminal case. And now I want to talk about uh, how this, the, the, the collapse of FTX the criminal case that's pending, the, the, the severity of it, the, the, it, it looks like it's, um, um, very serious, and the prosecutors will not have a difficult time proving the case. How does this all impact regulation? Let's let's talk about where we are now in the in the regulatory landscape. Um, Donna, where should the SEC have been uh, before FTX's collapse? How do you see the FTX saga? You know, changing conversations on regulation. What has it done to the urgency? Um, this this event has been a catalyst for the entire space. Um, to change in a lot of different ways. And I want you to sort of give us the lay of the land there. Okay. So, um, you know, we already mentioned a lot of alphabet soup agencies. Um, so let's just leave aside the box token for a moment because most of the problems, though they may have been the economic problems underpinning um, the collapse of the exchange, that's not, you know, that's not where the lines were crossed. The lines were crossed in a number of areas in terms of being, you know, this this flow of information and perhaps money between the trading arm and the exchange. And so what we need here is um, we need, and there's this dispute between the CFTC and the SEC as to who is re who is federally, because there is nobody now except for, for fraud or manipulation, who is in charge of these exchanges. And that can only be decided by Congress. Um, and we have, you know, the Stabenow bill, which is we just should assume is dead. Um, she's not running again. And, you know, given the influence that FTX had on that bill is probably gone. Can you explain why that question exists in the first place? What is different about these exchanges versus the exchanges that are already very clearly regulated? Yeah, the SEC on the federal level, the SEC regulates securities exchanges. OK, you would need to get a license. And there's clear, uh, there's there's clarity of what all those rules are about. Um, on the CFTC, they regulate commodities exchanges, uh, exchanges that you know are the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the 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 um, ICE Exchange down, and many exchanges have consolidated into Gold, clear silver, rules corn. around. Right. Yeah, clear clear rules around all of that. But the commodity exchange, so Bitcoin is a commodity commodity ex uh, a, a CFTC does not regulate with the exception of if there's fraud in the markets, it does not regulate non-futures, meaning under 28 days, 28 days and under, okay? 
So that is the spot market. They don't go and say, hey, Mr. Cattle Market, let's see what's going on. We're going to like, unless there are um, problems in the cattle market, the functioning of it, that then influence the futures markets. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that gap exists. And the lack of the lack of federal oversight there is 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 a problem. And it has been one of the ways in which the SEC has also said that they weren't going to allow a spot Bitcoin ETF, okay, which has been a huge problem for the industry. Okay. Now it does not mean that these exchanges are not regulated in the US. As I mentioned, they have state by state regulation and um, New York State DFS being one of the strictest ones, FTX had not gotten approval for that yet. But so each one of those states. So if you had a federal regulator, there would be certain things one assumes that would be watched and audited on a regular basis in terms of the separation of, uh, of, of, of house, let's just call it house, house and customer money, the need to have um, reporting of, of, of assets, you know, net, um, net crypto assets minus liabilities. And theoretically, since crypto's on chain, you should be able to see that daily. You should be able to see those net assets on a regular basis with quite ease. And on-chain, just, just for my mom listening at home, means that all of this is linked together mathematically and transparent in real time, right? So, yes. so yes. you don't have to wait for anything to be reported. Anybody can access the public ledger of transactions at any time from anywhere. Yes, and there also needs to be clarity with the relation to the terms of service. Like lots of people, when you get any kind of thing, you check a little box that says, yes, I accept the conditions. But you know, there needs to be somebody that makes sure that those conditions are met. In the FTX, they said, you know, we didn't lend, we don't lend your money, your money. We don't lend your crypto or your money. But in fact, they were lending your crypto and your money. Um, there needed to be somebody on a, that was overseeing the credit facility that they were giving Alameda, which they say is one was the result of their big deficit. So I think that um, those kinds of rules would be pretty easy to put into place. And most people and most exchanges within the U.S. operate under those rules. Um, it is not like the other exchanges don't. Um, but when you go to foreign entities, and that's why it's very important to have clarity of regulation in the U.S., because what we're doing is pushing people to operate overseas. And many, many funds have overseas you know, uh, jurisdictions as well. And, and they just you know, invest from over there. Got it. Okay, Justin, I want you to weigh in here on how the how the how, how regulators and prosecutors, law enforcement in general, um, how this has sort of scrambled the jets, right, uh, in the last month or so on what needs to be done to create some clarity here. So one of the criticisms that's come in the last couple of years is that what we have here is regulation by enforcement as opposed to actual regulation by making legislation by statute, yeah, or by rule. Right. Um, and government agencies have a power, have the power to make rules. Um, now, in the case of somebody like SBF or any real criminal scheme, rules are not going to stop that, right? And right. so it's not that there's a lack of there, – there isn't a lack of rules, at least in my view, to prevent outright fraud. There's plenty – everyone knows fraud is No, that's a crime. illegal. It's illegal. 
And, you know, if you commit fraud even from outside the U.S., if you set up shop in the Bahamas or elsewhere and are affecting the U.S. in some way, you'll get investigated and prosecuted for fraud. The problem with not having – with this regulation by enforcement is that all we ever hear about is fraud in regard to crypto. And so instead of hearing stories about ways we're going to protect investors, way we're, ways we're going to make sure that um, that all kinds of coins that may not be fraud but – may also not be totally on the up and up, uh, aren't properly regu- are properly regulated. Uh, there's just, there seems to be no interest in actually meaningfully putting together a framework with all the stakeholders. And instead it's just regulation by enforcement. The, do you think part of that, just to pause for a moment, is because of a knowledge gap? I, I do think it's part of it. I think that a lot of people don't understand crypto, okay. plain and simple. And there's a reason that everyone understands fraud. Everyone understands a balance sheet that looks like that. Everyone understands um, a Ponzi scheme to some degree. And so I think that's one reason for it is that a lot of people don't don't understand it. It looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, must be. Yeah, yeah. but I think the other other thing is that um, it's important to give, it's important for the government to give people a real sense of what the ground rules are. Yeah. What's fair and what's not fair. And- I do think that when you only have regulation by enforcement, sure, the the real schemes, the real frauds of the world, go out and get them. I think yeah. everybody who's invested or interested in crypto is of the opinion that if you're committing a scheme and stealing people's money, we want you out, right? Totally. We're all totally. on that page. Yeah. Um, because but, everybody who's actually excited about the promise of these things is they're, they're going to lose out if this becomes the, the norm. Exactly. Right? And yeah. people who are not engaged in that kind of illegal conduct, but are just trying to figure out the rules are at a loss. And they're worried about enforcement, whether it's from DOJ or from an agency like the SEC or CFTC. And they're worried about one other thing, which is not the same as enforcement, but is related. And that's investigation risk. And I know when we advise clients in anything, crypto or other, or any other area, there's the risk that you'll actually get prosecuted or that you'll actually be the subject of an enforcement action by the SEC or CFTC or DFS or another agency. But there's also the real cost of an investigation, the cost in terms of paying lawyers, um, and you should always pay your lawyers, Um, (laughs) but uh, the cost in terms of an investigation, and then frankly, the cost in terms of whether other people want to do business with you while you're under investigation, the reputational cost, um, the risk that's involved in anything. And so when you have regulators and enforcers that are not setting out clear rules, clear guidelines, and are just constantly enforcing and looking for the next case, the next case, the next case. And they have this club, which is just investigations, even if they don't actually bring charges. Exactly. And frankly, getting a subpoena, we all have obligations to ser- to comply with subpoenas if we get it. It's our civic duty. That can be really expensive and really mm-hmm. burdensome. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have a very aggressive set of government agencies doing that, uh, it can impose a real cost and it can make you look really bad if you're under investigation because how many how many stories have we seen in the media about X companies under investigation and the effect that has on the company? So, um, I, you know, if I had my druthers, which yeah. I don't, um, but if I had my druthers, you'd have clear and we could argue about should it be more regulated, less regulated, but you'd have a clear set of rules and a clear set of guidelines for companies and people, not the fraudsters. Go after the fraudsters. But the other people who are trying to figure out how to make this work within a legal framework, you have to give them something so that 
it's not always after the yeah. fact being investigated. Yeah, they don't know what the rules of the road are. Go ahead, Donna. And the other thing that I would say is that I would say that the current SEC chair has been uh, very disingenuous. Um, I, I can say that because I, I don't represent anybody, nor will I ever <laughs> be in front of the, the chair. Um, because when they do, when he says something like, oh, he says, that exchange is trading all securities. Well, tell us which ones. Which ones? Bring some actions. Tell us which ones. But instead, they go after the soft target and they'll say so-and-so was tra- was was um, insider trading on these coins. Uh, it's a case that, that was a, um, a Wahi case. Um, and that's nobody believes that you should take your employer's information and use it in any way whatsoever. That's not that's not good to do. But tell us which were the coins. Show us what were the characteristic of those coins. Do something. Let those protocols have their day in court. And they that was not done. Okay, so those kinds of things, those kinds of things happen. Moreover, in a recent settlement, he he goes and does these office hours with with Chair Gensler and said, all you have to do is fill up a form. Well, that's not the case, because if everybody wanted to fill, if it was just filling up a form, people would do that. But in fact, what happens is, is there's a settlement and then there's no pathway in order to be able to cure. And so when BlockFi paid an enormous amount of money to settle, that was to the enforcement division. But trading and markets, another part of the SEC, never gave them a clear pathway to be able to register and then offer these products, which they agreed were securities. So it's disingenuous to say it's easy to do, the rules are there, and just take simple things like if it's a security, you're supposed to have a transfer agent. Well, we know what the transfer is. It's on a blockchain. Why would we pay a rent seeker money um, in order to be able to do something that clearly happens with the software? So I do think that there's a lot of of misconception going on and a a, a PR war for the public that is, um, frankly, the, the, the crypto industry itself is not consolidated together to be able to battle that war. And, 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 and I would say has not done a fantastic job. But to be clear, you know, we do need another set of honest, hardworking people to put down some rules, get input from the industry, you know, do some pilot programs like Commissioner Pierce and others have suggested. Um, this is now 15 years on from Bitcoin almost. No, please. I think it's time. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And I do want to talk about the PR war. Do you have any other thoughts on this before we? Okay, so uh, the 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 impact on public perception, um, the 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 collapse of FTX, the high, very high profile criminal case. I mean, he's also just a a, a figure that uh, that makes for entertaining news coverage, right? There's that piece of this too. So I just want to spend a little bit of time thinking about how the downfall of FTX and SBF has changed the way. Um, you know, advocates, lobbyists, activists um, for these emerging financial uh, tools and instruments talk about the industry and how it's how it's changing the way the general public is thinking about um, about emerging finance. And I know from uh, from uh, emails that we've gotten into politicology, uh, and also I think you know back when I was trying to be a little bit more active on Twitter, I polled everybody who follows me on Twitter and asked them, you know, what is your level of familiarity with um, you know uh, cryptocurrency or digital assets. And, um, and I think one of the options was like, 
uh, none and I don't want any, like stop bothering me with this. And that actually won. That was the majority of people, at least who follow me on Twitter. And it's not a non-scientific poll, but I want to think about the public perception implications of, of, of this case and, um, and where you think it, where you think it needs to move. And I, and I put that to both of you, um, because I think, I think we've done a pretty good job at differentiating, um, Bitcoin from all of these, you know, tokens, protocols, securities um, that are centralized, um, which are fundamentally different. I've made that point on the podcast before. Um, but I want to leave our listeners here with a better understanding of not just the, the, the significance of the disruption that's happening within the financial services industry, um, but, uh, but with a little bit of nuance uh, about how, how this industry is evolving um, needs needs regulatory clarity, uh, but also the promise that it holds for um, for the for the way we transact uh, and exchange value. Um, so I just want I'm interested in how you both are thinking about uh, about where we go from here. Not necessarily uh, in terms of the law or criminal prosecutions, but 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 this but this piece of our economy um, as a whole. And I I um, whoever wants to lead off there, Justin? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, so I, I think this is, this whole story in the last few months and crypto winter is not good for crypto. Right. I mean, I think there's no way around right. it. Um, and the view that it's something that- A lot of people think crypto is over now. Yeah. Right? I, I don't and think, that's wrong. Yeah, I don't think crypto is over. And I do think it's very, I think it was very, I agree with the way that you just distinguish crypto from Bitcoin in the sense that they're just different. Yeah. Right. You, they're not, Bitcoin is not magic beans coin. Right. Um, even if there are a million magic beans coins running around. So I think the crypto industry and the world of crypto is going to get smaller now. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It's not going to get tiny, right. but it'll get, Pruned. Uh, it'll, yeah. And a lot of the chaff will hopefully fade away. Yeah. I think you're going to see more cases like the SBFs, none that are going to be as big or as prominent because few people were as prominent in the world of crypto as SBF before his collapse. Um, but I think that perception problem is going to persist until there's some kind of clear regulatory framework. Yeah. And I, and frankly, I think it has to come from not just the agencies. You know, if you asked me five years ago, I would have said, okay, the regulatory agencies can put together rules and that'll solve it. I, I think there needs to be something, whether it's from Congress or from um, the administration, there needs to be a clear framework. Not everyone will like it, but um, that says both crypto is and can be legitimate, mm -hmm. and here are the rules on how it can be legitimate. Um, I think as far as public perception goes, that will go a long way yeah. in improving public perception and saying that like every under, other industry and the financial industry, broadly speaking, has always had fraud. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't use banks just because there are fraudsters at banks. Um, it doesn't mean we don't, uh, it, it's true for everything, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. but, but there needs to be that framework. Cash can be used for all the terrible things that we're accusing crypto people of doing. Exactly. So, and yeah. so, and so I think, but I think it needs some degree of legitimacy yeah. really from political leadership. Yeah, I agree with you. And I would add, I would add that it needs to be bipartisan in this environment. And I'm one of the, one of the things I'm most afraid of is that this becomes uh, the next sort of uh, partisan lightning rod. And that would be bad for everybody, I think. Donna, go ahead. There's a lot of adoption that's going on 
irrespective of the regulatory framework in the United States. And we pointed to many countries, a global, you know, oh, yeah. crypto is a global thing. Yeah. Digital assets are global. But, you know, when you can send a stable coin to, you know, remittances is a gigantic business. If I want to, if I'm working in a stable coin country, is stable coin is a coin that stays stable. It doesn't fluctuate in price. It's a it's a token that is pegged to the dollar, pegged to the euro, um, et cetera. Um, and so, if I want to send that to to Justin, who is my family that lives in Latin America, the Philippines, or anything else, he will get that token literally in five seconds, and it will not have rent seekers on both ends. And remittances, as we know, for many, many workers is a, is a, a, um, the way they send money home. Yeah. And many of these rent seekers take from the people that need the money the most, yeah. you know, every bit of it, they take 10 to 15 percent yeah. charge to get that money to where it's going. As so a specific think, example, we should mention Mexican migrants who send money back yes. home via places like Western Union, which take a huge cut of the money that they're sending back home. So the, the opportunity here, that's just one very small example of the opportunity that is presented by these technologies. Go ahead. Yeah. The other thing, and maybe you'll do another podcast at oh, a later time on, yeah, lots more. is, you know, one should not forget that a lot of so the contention, I think, now around crypto digital assets and DeFi is because central governments are creating their central bank digital currency. And those currencies do not will not operate um, in the same realm of privacy. We've already seen the Chinese one being um, tested a number of times. But so I do think that um, many of the big companies like the JP Morgans and others are very interested in digital assets. They see the promise of being able to send things quickly. Um, the, the, the SEC also does see the ability to settle shares and all those kinds of things more, more, more timely than it has been as an, as something in the future, though they've been reluctant to really move security tokens forward quickly enough. But there is a lot going on here. And the more the traditional finance sees areas of digital assets as interesting, the more they're going to want to co-opt the decentralized aspect and bring it under their their um, you know offering of products. And you know, so that's just you know some of the kind of cynical view of where we could where this could go instead of it being a tool to be able to create freedom and the ability to own your own own your own assets um, without interference from from governments in a, in compliant ways. I'm not saying just as sure. a banshee. Yeah, yeah. There's so there's so so much to get to. Um, and again, some of the themes that I mentioned at the top of the show: um, privacy, specifically uh, the ability to transact. Um, we're gonna we're gonna explore those in detail uh, when we do put together this 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 on ramp to. Um, to cryptocurrency, to Bitcoin, to the emerging financial world. Um, uh, so, so I, I like I promise we're definitely going to, do, to we're definitely going to do that. Uh, but I wanted to have this conversation to give people a window into to, to use this news story, this event as a as a window into just just how complicated and important, consequential this space is. All right. So before I let you go, uh, where can everybody find you? 
on the internet. Do you want to be found on the internet, Justin? I want to be found. Okay, on the where do you want to be found? Maybe, maybe I'll regret <laughs> saying that. Uh, you can you can find me at morganlewis.com. I'm there. Uh, I have a webpage. Great. It's if you're in fashioned. need of criminal representation, okay. yes. Hopefully you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you never need to. Call Hopefully me. you never need to. <laughs> Donna. Um, I think you know I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and I do a little Twitter, but you know, focus Twitter not too much or crazy things. Terrific. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.